Welcome to the broadcast. It's my delight to have Dr. Bruce Waltke on the broadcast today. A little anecdote before I tell you a little bit about Dr. Waltke's very long CV or personalia or whatever you want to talk about, how we describe people and their credentials. But I was a recent seminary graduate at Dallas Seminary. We had attended a church called Trinity Fellowship, where Ed Bloom was the teaching elder. It was kind of a brethren-esque church. It was a little different than some churches that have a pastor, so to speak. But we had a 10th year anniversary, and Dr. Waltke was invited to speak. Dr. Alan Hull, who is also a dear, precious friend, he's a physician. He and Dr. Waltke have known each other for many, many years. So there was all these connections. I had known about Dr. Waltke at Dallas Seminary, although he had left by the time I went there. Dr. Alan Ross was my Hebrew instructor. There were all these legendary stories about how hard Dr. Waltke was as a professor, but I don't think anyone was harder than Dr. Ross, so he must have inherited it from Dr. Waltke. Be that as it may, Ed Bloom gave him a wonderful, funny, sarcastic introduction, and Dr. Waltke stood up, and in his inimical way, he said, well, thank you for uh, flying my wife and me to Dallas. We haven't been here in a while, and thank you for inviting this theological odd bird to come back and speak. <laughs> well, I don't remember that. <laughs> I doubt you remember that, but that's a true story. <laughs> and then you taught on a passage, and I'll never forget this. And you said, and I've used this line many times and I've attributed you, you said, I'm going to read a passage of the Old Testament. And he goes, I'm a little nervous because it takes several minutes to read it. I was practicing and I was concerned, will people be able to listen? Because it's a very detailed text. And it was about Horam or Hiram and the Gimper. And you said, but when I get to the part of the capitals, I'll almost be done. And then you said something I've never forgotten. But we should pay attention because it is a page of the very Word of God. I still remember that, and I've used it many times. Dr. Walkie is a boy. Let me just read some of these. Dallas Seminary and Harvard trained his PhD, from one of his PhDs from Harvard University, a THD from Dallas Seminary. He's Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Regent College, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Knox Theological Seminary. He's author of An Old Testament Theology. It's certainly a significant contribution to the books he's written. Also commentaries on Genesis, Micah, Proverbs, Psalms. I have probably all of his commentaries. He is now a member at Advent Anglican Church in Woodenville, Washington. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Dr. Walkie. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. Good to be here. Glad to share what Ever the Lord would want to have me share. We're going to have more information about Dr. Walk in the show notes. Especially, there is a, a ministry called Biblical Training, and they've got 54 lectures, 27 and 27, on the Proverbs and on the Psalms, where you can listen to Dr. Walkie. But we want you to learn about this new book, How to Read and Understand the Psalms, with Dr. Bruce Walkie and Dr. Fred Zaspel. First of all, how did you get into languages, Bruce? You obviously have a mind and an acumen for language, but was this something, I mean, were you just wired this way as a child? Did language come to you pretty easily? No, no. Originally, I was interested in theology. And then I realized from a reform perspective that all our theology, 
because we believe in revelation, that what I know about God is communicated through language. And to be a precise theologian, I first of all had to be a linguist and understood the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. And I really could not be authoritative theologian, I thought, until I was first competent in the languages. Mm. And then I majored in Hebrew because I didn't understand the Old Testament. <laughs> so when I was doing my THM, we had four years required Greek and three years required Hebrew, but both Jackie Deer and uh, Alan Ross encouraged us to continue our Hebrew. They said, look, you're not going to do this on your own. So you're here at seminary. We can help you. And so I took electives and spent four years in each of them and took a couple of electives from Dr. Ross. I'll never be Dr. Ross, a Dr. Deer, or Dr. Waltke, but I do use my languages. And so your legacy carried on. Who was your Hebrew professor at Dallas? Merrill Unger. Unger, the okay, one, yeah. Yeah, the one who influenced me was S. Lewis Johnson. Of course. And yeah. I remember, see, I had majored in, well, I would minored in Greek in college, and I was used to reading just Aristophanes or Homer or whatever, and never really exegeted. And then I got into his class, Dr. Johnson's class, and I felt that the text had been put under a microscope. Mm. And I'll tell you the truth, at first I was bored. I said, let's get gone, let's get reading. <laughs> but then I realized it all came down to the grammar, language. Wonderful. Let's talk about this new book, How to Read and Understand the Psalms. Obviously, you've spent years in the Psalter and in Proverbs, so I suspect organizing this was probably a fun project for you. You're packaging this, if I understand the book correctly, as I've read good portions of it. You're designing it for pastors, Sunday school teachers, those to help them read and then hopefully teach through the Psalms, correct? Yes, that was it. It's really what happened was Fred, as a doctor says, Bell, he wanted to preach the Psalms in his church. And he said, I didn't know how to go about it. I just could not fully identify with it. And then he learned about this course with Bill Mouse and biblical training yeah. And he took that course, and he said, after I finished the course, I couldn't wait to preach the Psalms. Yeah. Thereupon, he called me up and said, is it all right if you wrote up the course as a book? And so it's based on that course. And with software today that can detect plagiarism, it shows that 40% of the book is word for word out of the course, which is what it was. <laughs> Basic software can show that even, yeah. not copy, but on tapes. Yeah. That surprised me. Well, I have listened to the biblical training, all, all the Proverbs and most of the Psalms. And again, for our folks that don't know Dr. Waltke, we'll have information in the show notes. But if you put his name, W-A-L-T-K-E, in your search engine or browser, you will find uh, many places where you can listen to him free of charge. Let's talk about the organization of the Psalms, Dr. Waltke. You often hear people say there's five books. Give us a thumbnail of what that means. Well, in the final editing of the book, there are five collections that end with the formula of a doxology, blessed be the name of the Lord. And those doxologies occur at the end of 41, 72, and 106. 
And as a result, you have one through 41. I actually think one and two is the introduction to the book. I think book one is actually Psalms 3 through 41. And they have a certain coherency about them because all those Psalms are the David by David. And there's only one exception, and that is Psalm 33, which is a praise psalm, and it is anonymous. And then the second collection is 42 through 72. That collection is mostly by the sons of Korach and also by David and also by Asaph. What I think is that collection one is from the heyday of David's great reign. And I believe book two really was originated at the end of the end of David and the beginning of the fall of the Davidic monarchy and probably under Solomon. Book three ends with 89, and that book is anticipatory of the exile. It speaks of the judgment and the fall of Jerusalem's temple, destruction of the temple, two of Psalms by Asaph. Psalm 89 is the destruction of Jerusalem. The crown of David is rolling in the dust. And so that comes from the beginning, looking to the exile. Book 4, 90 through 106, is really written during the exile, put together. The Psalms are much earlier, but they're collected in that book. And it, at book 4 ends with Psalm 106 with a prayer, gather us from among the nations. Book 5, as now they are regarded as post-exilic, that's when it was collected, and it begins with 107, giving praise to God for regathering them from among the nations. So if you look at the last verse of 106, the first verses of 107.2, you'll see this prayer to be gathered, and then they answered that they were gathered. So that's what makes up the five books. They're chronologically developed. Now, you mentioned uh, most of them written by David in certain books. The superscriptions, there's been some discussion over the decades about were those Masoretic, were they added, are they considered inerrant? Help us out to understand these superscriptions. Like in Psalm 51, we've got quite an elaborate explanation of the psalm. Yes. Two things. First of all, I argue where you have, there's two parts to the superscript. Superscript meaning what's written above the poetry of the psalm itself. And that's in prose, and the psalm itself is in poetry. And the superscript has two parts, and many of them. The first part says, for the director of music, and then gives a musical instrument or some liturgical term. And then you get a psalm of David. And I'm convinced that for the director of music, is a post that before you get the genre psalm, and then the authorship of David, I'm persuaded that that is a postscript to the preceding psalm. And in the book, we have a whole appendix arguing that case. And then we get to the superscript that deals with the author, the genre, and the author. And historically, those were accepted as historically credible. But beginning really due to the criticism of the skepticism, biblical studies in the 18th century. The whole authorship of the Bible had been called into question, and those superscripts were just labeled as late in the early period, 
it was thought that the Psalms actually came, the whole Psalter was composed in the post-exilic period, and they're not by David at all. The skepticism about they're by David has permeated into the evangelical community, yes. evangelical commentaries, and I have a whole section on the historicity, on the credibility of Davidic authorship, and when it says when he committed sin with Bathsheba, 51, that's all historically credible. To my mind, many of them, you, that historical setting is necessary to a proper interpretation of the song. So we have a whole section on the historicity of these superscripts. Talk uh, in some just general survey terms about the types, lament, royal, or enthronement, personal, congregational. I want to ask you a little bit more about the personal psalms and then congregational psalms, but help folks understand who maybe don't know that we have categories. And are we forcing those labels on the text, or do we see, for example, lament language, and therefore we categorize it as lament? Throughout the history of interpretation, going back to the rabbis, they recognized there were different kinds of psalms. And it remained for Hermann Gunkel, 1900 to 1925, to do a rigorous scientific way of showing that there were distinct kinds of psalms. He argued there was five major kinds of psalms. Mm -hmm. There are psalms of praise hymns, and these psalms praise God as creator and for the history of redemption. So they deal broadly with God's benevolent attributes and creator, and as these attributes are worked out in the history of Israel. So those are hymns. The second category, though he didn't put this in his book, as introduction, is lament. And in these psalms, the psalmist is in crisis. And the crisis can be similar to what you find in 1 Kings 8, drought, and especially enemies. In almost 47 of the lament, he's dealing with enemies. And so he is, in these psalms, he's praying to be delivered from the crisis in which he finds himself. The third kind of psalm is a grateful praise psalm, normally called thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a little bit of a misnomer to me because I can say to you, thank you. Thank you for having me. But that would not be thanksgiving in the Old Testament. It would be rather that I would tell everybody else how wonderful Michael Easley is or what a wonderful program he is. And so these Thanksgiving Psalms are confession about what God has done for the psalmist in answering his prayer. We call those Thanksgiving Psalms. I prefer to call them Psalms of Grateful Praise. Mm. I think it's more accurate with what Todah means. Gunkel's fourth kind of psalm, he distinguished between individual lament and community lament. And so you have this distinct where the whole nation is in crisis, and that would be like Psalm 44 when the army has gone down in defeat. He separated out another kind of psalm, royal psalms, and these are psalms that mention the king. Those were the, his five major kinds. And then there are some 
minor types within that. When we talk about individual and congregational or corporate, I've always been curious about that because if we read an individual lament or an individual praise, the congregation, if I'm teaching that, we are sort of leaning in and hearing, let's say David, for example, or Asaph, write that song, psalm hymn. So help us understand the why is it important to differentiate between an, an individual and a congregational? Well, I'm not sure it's all that important. I think what's okay. important, <laughs> I think what's important, I'm, I was describing what Gunkel did. When I first read Gunkel, I was pretty well convinced by what he had done. It was very rigorous scholarship, though he's, I, he's, he has no spirit at all. He's just a scientist. He tears the flower apart, never puts it together again. He never smells the spirit. You could tell that. And then I was reading, I happened to be reading First Chronicles 16, where David institutes the Levites as the ministers of music at the temple. And it says he appointed them the Haskil Halal to bring to remembrance, which is, I think, petition, lament. See, the lament psalms all contain petition. So you have petition psalms. And then comes giving grateful praise and then giving praise. So right there, the chronicler is telling us there are three kinds of psalms, which was really confirming what Gunkel did, but I don't think Gunkel ever cited that first. Hmm. The important point is that he had psalms about, there are 10 psalms about the king who stand apart from these three major types. And they, like Psalm 2 is a coronation liturgy. Psalm 20 and 21, the king is going out to battle, the king returns from battle. 45, you have the king's wedding. Well, there are 10 psalms that are all about the king. The other part is that the eye of the Psalms is the king. And that's what brings the nation and the individual together. Because the king, as Funrat said, is the breath in the nostrils of the people. They're inseparable from the king. And therefore, they're mostly about the king. And we have a whole section on the importance of that. Here I'm indebted to John Eaton, Kingship of the Psalms in 1976. When you understand that, you understand how they speak of Christ. And when you read the Psalms, you read them. They're the victories of Christ. They're the deliverance of Christ. It's our identification with him. And because of the king, that's why they can go back and forth. I do not trust in our bow, but you have brought us down in defeat. And it goes back and forth between the I and the we, which is because it's the army. And once you understand that, that will revolutionize for the Christian the reading of the Psalter. So we have a whole section on that understanding. Well, I appreciate you bringing up the king and the aspect of Messianic, because that was one of my other questions was, do you think the Old Testament believers understood these, I don't want to say veiled, it wasn't veiled, but the reference when it's Davidic, he's really talking messianic, that there will be a king on the throne of David forever. Well, yes, I think that many of them, David himself, was anticipating the ideal kingship, which would be fulfilled in Christ. Even if they were for him alone, the way I put it is, here they had all these royal robes, but there was no king with shoulders broad enough to wear them. Mm. 
they would drape them on each successive king and because they know it, none measured up. And finally, in the exile, they have no king, but they have all these robes. And they're waiting for a king to wear them. So that it's interesting to me, like Psalm 2, I've set my king on the holy hill of Zion. That's Psalm 2. That was a coronation liturgy. But when the Psalter is collected, Israel is under Persia, the heel of yep. Persia. Yep. And they're yep. expressing their faith in the coming Messiah when they recited these Psalms. So it was their faith that these Psalms spoke about the king, coming king, that sustained true Israel, just like our faith in the second coming is of Christ, sustains us through all the vicissitudes in which we find ourselves. So I don't think we fully comprehend that this book of praise and God reigns in the whole enthronement Psalms of 93 through 100, they're all collected when they had no king. Yeah. I think we fail to realize the faith of the Levites who put the book together. It's a yeah. tremendous faith. I often make the observation that every emotion, every lament, praise, grief, whatever, just on a human level is expressed in the Psalter. Sometimes I think, and correct me, but I think the Old Testament saints probably had a better eschatology on a future king than we do because <laughs> they believed what they knew at the time to be true. Yes. I mean, they're in exile, they're in captivity. We'll talk about imprecatory where they can't even sort of, if you will, work themselves up to sing because they're so forlorn, but they still believed. You know, the Western church has abdicated so much of what it believes because of circumstance or yeah. personal preference. Right. Yeah, no, very certainly. They, they certainly believed in, uh, but whether or not it's fulfilled as they understood it, literally, that's another. That sure. I see the Old Testament, the king and the kingdom and the carnal warfare, all as metaphor of mm. the spiritual realities in which we find ourselves, because it's no longer an iron sword, it's the sword of the spirit, for example. So mm. for me, I have to, well, that gets into a, a deeper problem, just like Jesus had a, he says, destroy this temple, and they think it's literal. No, I mean, he means the his own body. Right. And Nicodemus, you must be born again. He thinks it's going back in the womb. No, I mean spiritual. He's at Jacob well, and drink of the water I give you, never thirst again. She thinks of a literal well. No, it means the spirit right. of God. So he's constantly reinterpreting the Old Testament that way. But that gets you into systematic theology, and that's, that's a much deeper discussion. Well, let's come back to the Psalter. Talk about imprecatory psalms, because I think they give people heartburn sometimes. You know, that we're praying for our enemy destruction. I often think of Psalm 55 as being one that, that people might have the most angst over. Let me just get over there and read a couple of those verses in particular. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this may be referencing a hippothel where he says, this is in the English text, 5513, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, we walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. 
So again, for folks that maybe A, aren't familiar with imprecation, imprecatory, and then B, how do you handle that from a teaching standpoint? Yes, we have a whole section on that. We were talking earlier about the man, and it always includes petition. Petitions are always to be delivered, and over 35 of them move beyond petition, but they move directly into justice. In other words, to punish the enemy, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so, therefore, they're asking for justice. They're asking to be avenged. Therefore, they're asking of God what he expected of the king. The king is irresponsible if he doesn't punish the enemy. The whole idea of justice is to deliver the oppressed and punish the oppressor. So it's really a question of God's righteousness and justice that's at stake here. And they, as they anticipated the consummation, they they were looking forward to the destruction of the enemy. They didn't have the sweet melody that we have in the church of forgiving. But nevertheless, the problem in the modern church is we don't have enough about God's judgment either. We don't fear God. We're always on the love of God, which is great. But we know justice is in the future. Otherwise, if there is not judgment, then God is not just. There has to be. But we know it's in the future. And therefore, we're free to forgive and leave it to God, his judgment. But the New Testament is clear. There's a day of judgment coming. But we today are, and the emphasis of the new dispensation is to offer God's grace. And that's the focus, is he died for sinners. They understood God's grace, but nothing like we do today in the light of Christ. So the Psalms are theologically sound, but they're religiously inappropriate today, those imprecatories, because uh, unless you understand them for the future, because I don't think we should be praying that God will smite the enemy. Not appropriate, but they are appropriately to be taught because they teach judgment and they teach righteousness. I don't think we hear enough of that. This becomes a big shift to a pastoral question, you minister to a lot of men in ministry in particular who are pastors. How do you encourage them to stand on the scripture and teach we might call the whole counsel of God when it comes to consequence of our sin, that there is a judgment not only for the believer but the unbeliever, and we shy away from these doctrines or we're just unwilling to embrace them? I think the problem is that we want to make people happy instead of holy. And we want to be therapeutic instead of sanctification. And I think we need to get back to basics again. And I think we've been too impacted by the world and not enough by the word of God. And I think part of it is there's a paucity of sound, exposition, and exegesis of God's word. And I think there's just a lack of sound theology going on. And it's, it's a weakness of the church. Yeah. It's sad. It's hard to watch. Some of the Psalms have an ending, and I want to think 25 and 27, where the prayer is not answered, we might say. How long, O Lord? And I've always found sort of a 
a lovely, terrible tension in that because not to yeah. jump too far to application and you're more than welcome to correct me, but it's weirdly encouraging to me to say there are times you will pray rightly. There's an injustice we may not ever see resolved in this life. And some prayers aren't answered. Sometimes the Psalms leave us with an unanswered petition. Thoughts? Yes, I think that's Thank you, Michael. I think that's very well said and very true to the Psalms. They do end unresolved and are living by faith. But then again, the whole book is also unresolved. <laughs> there is but, that. You know, and you have like the first story of Cain and Abel. Abel is a, a <laughs> the first three stories in the Bible, the first three great heroes of faith, I think it's significant. The first one is uh, Abel, and he dies. It's Cain who lives out his normal life. And when it told anything else about Abel, yep. it infers a judgment beyond what Cain experienced in this life. So you got you got Abel, he died, and then you got Enoch, and he never died, and then you got Noah, and everybody else died. <laughs> so you can't judge faith by the outcome now. All I know is that it pleases God, and <laughs> so I can't remember how late it was in my life when I stumbled across the approach of the questions that God asks man. And I think in Hebrew, it's the fifth or sixth question when you bring up Cain, and he says, why are you angry? And I I struck by the quick downhill slide from the garden and the fall and the murder of Abel, and then, you know, the question, why are you angry? That was one that hit me in the head and the heart and the chest going, Michael, why are you ever angry? Why do you ever have a right to be angry at anything? And that was, you know, ostensibly yeah. the first, quote, sin, I mean, after the fall, the first, quote, right. sin that's recorded. Interesting. That's very helpful. I am troubled by people who read the psalm and an angry God. I, I see a yep. just God. The speaking of the psalm is expressing his anger. Rather, they're, yes. they're expressing their vexation that the lack of justice being done and not happening but that demands the life of faith of us, to let God be God. You mentioned earlier about deconstructing the psalm. I remember reading Umberto Cusudo in Genesis. If memory serves, he was not a, a believer in any way, shape, or form. He's a brilliant Hebrew scholar, and, and in some ways that book is unparalleled by many commentators. And I've always been struck by the fact that someone can study Scripture in such a great depth, understand it better than I can, but doesn't embrace it. When you look at the scripture as a whole, and some of these things that, again, there's a tension, they aren't answered, we don't believe them. What ministers to you personally? Bruce, you can look at the scripture in layers that most of us can't, and you get to mine the gold and find some of the pearls that most of us will never read but what is it that ministers to you beyond just the technical? Like you said, he, he never looked at the flower. He just took it apart. Kasudo never embraced it. He just analyzed it. Yeah. You know, it's what every believer experiences, and that is we experience 
the spirit of God. I have no other way of explaining it. So that the word of God just comes alive in my heart. It's a mystery. And that's just God's grace. That the natural man does not receive the things of God. Yeah. For me, along with the whole community of faith, I find it sheer delight and joy. And so, you know, it's the old story that the sun will harden the clay and melt the wax. And so it depends on who you are. So that's what the very first chapter of this, how to read, is the necessity of the spiritual life. So that you hear the melody, you sing the song. And that's something you don't control. That's a gift of God. It's the grace of God. I've often been amazed at God's grace to me that I could spend my life in his word this way. And I'm so glad I can share it with other people, share what I've learned. And But to, to kindle the heart, it has to be the power of God and not our rhetoric. He doesn't bring on the field of battle, the eloquent people. He brings on the field of battle, the lambs and people of faith. So he is the glory. I love it. I love it. But we're also called to make disciples and encourage and admonish and instruct and you know, yeah. if we looked at the New Testament, one and others, just those alone, they yeah. convict and guilt me into, okay, Michael, you need to, to love God's people and encourage them. And what have yeah. you found? I mean, obviously, as a professor, you've fanned the flame, the spark of a lot of students who were banging their head against the Hebrew text, and yeah. you've encouraged others to grow in the knowledge of the Word, not just academically, but to to right. relish it, to walk in the Spirit, to walk by faith, but also to teach it. You've had to have seen some similarities or some observations on those who tend to grow versus those who maybe are apathetic or don't. I was asked recently to uh, share my life, and after I shared my life, be history of how God had shaped me and hopefully still shaping me. Well, obviously, there's so much more to go. And then, anyway, afterward, they uh, asked me, what do I think is my legacy? What do I expect to have left behind? Hmm. I don't think, it's not the books that I'll leave behind or anything like that. It's the people. What did the Spirit of God do in them through the gifts God given me? How have they been shaped for eternity? And they shape in others. So the legacy is really people and students. That's my legacy. And it's like Paul, you are my letters of recommendation. And so for me, if I do life again, I'd spend a lot more time with the students I already had and encourage them more and, and further their work more. That's a weakness. And, you know, we're all depraved. And every day I have to die to self. Every day I have to be rebaptized as it were. Uh, to die and raised again to new life. I need that constant refreshment because, as Solomon said, stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from words of knowledge. And I know that through of me. You know, when I worked on the, um, well, I still do, I worked on the committee for the NIV. When we did Proverbs, well, I was in Scotland, 1974, and I was up at four in the morning and doing my Hebrew and studying. 
And I did that five days a week for about 12 hours a day. And at the end of the summer, I was farther from God than when I began because it was mostly intellectual, flesh, will. I really wasn't growing in, in prayer and dependence upon God. And so you have to begin with prayer. And while you're working, you have to be in prayer. And it's so easy in the ministry. You know, most of the world is working for money. Uh, young people are, well, I, I define God as that which gives you security and gives you significance. And I think that's Psalm 49. And I think most people find the security and the significance in material things. Young people find it in sex appeal. If you're like me, no money, no sex appeal. <laughs> I think you find it in, in your gift. That my security and significance is that people accept me. And I think more fundamental than anything else in us is we want a good reputation. I think that's a very fundamental drive mm. in our reputations. And we have to die to that so that it's oh, God's glory. That's a constant struggle. It's not natural. I remember hearing you tell that story about your study in Proverbs before, and my response then and now is, but look at how God still used you. I think of times in 43 years of pastoral ministry where I've been in the weeds, as it were, or in the wrong thing. I mean, you think of elder meetings, most pastors just sort of cringe. I mean, sure, sometimes you have wonderful times with men of God who are in the scriptures, they're good shepherds, they love God's people, they love God's word, but often it can be business or personnel or politics, and yeah. you go, you know, my neighbor's going to hell, and we're talking about this. And yet I always have to take the 30,000-foot view and go, in spite of all this, God chose to use me. That's right. In spite of however many hours in the Hebrew text, God used Bruce Waltke to infect and influence a, for example, Alan Ross, who infected and influenced a Michael Easley. So, you know, yeah. it, it's hard to measure these things, but isn't that yeah. the wonderful part about the Christian life? We don't know how God is using us. Right. <laughs> the old saying, he uses a crooked stick to draw a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it's, it's grace is greater than our failures, isn't it? Amen, or we're in big trouble. I want you to encourage our folks. I'll mention again the book, How to Read and Understand the Psalms. It's a brand new publication by Crossway. We'll have the information in the show notes as always, but if you just search Dr. Waltke, W-A-L-T-K-E, and you put Psalms, you will find a plethora of great links of watching him teach, explain. And interestingly, uh, the biblical training has got almost everything in full transcript, free of charge, for those of you who would prefer to read as opposed to listen. But final thoughts, Dr. Waltke, encouraging people, whether it's in the Psalms or in their Christian life. Christ, I think, memorized the Psalter. It shaped him, and humanly speaking. It's his hymn book, and it shaped the people of God throughout the ages. So you're really dealing with a scripture that reshapes the heart and transforms us 
and it will point us to Christ and become, making us more like him until our perfections when we see him. So that'll be my final word. Dr. Bruce Waltke, it's a privilege to learn from you from text and from watching and listening over the years. Thanks for jumping on the podcast with us. God bless you in the, the next chapter and how you continue to serve the Lord and his people. Michael, thank God for you and your ministry. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.